Oh, we're living in a day where a lot of people keep telling Christians what they think we're supposed to be all about. It's that, it's that, it's this. Why aren't you this? But I agree with the person who said, Christians have been called to an eternal preoccupation with God. Who he is, what he's done. Oh, hang on, it gets better. And where he's done it. In my life, it happened to me. We are called to an eternal preoccupation with God. And I'm going to push back to some of you that are pushing back right now. You're like, well, I don't want to be so heavenly minded. I'm no earthly good. There's a word I want to say that I've been asked never to say again because of children. But you can think it right now. Let me help you. Do you know who is most fruitful, helpful, effective in this world? The people that don't have a ceiling on this world that easily... Stay aware of eternal things. Stay aware of the spiritual realm. Stay aware of heaven and where we're headed. Stay aware of our Savior. That doesn't make you no earthly good. What makes you no earthly good is when you allow the cellophane to just shrink you down and you do nothing but Fox News and you do nothing but social media, you are the one that becomes no earthly good. Punch a hole through that. And that's why we're talking about worship. Worship keeps you breathing and aware of, oh, but there's more. Oh, there's way more than this. It doesn't mean I don't get involved. It doesn't mean I don't know what's going on. But it does mean I have perspective that keeps me joyful, peaceful, purposeful, helpful, hopeful. Preoccupation with God. Because here's the deal. This is a worship series. So you ready? I went to school a lot, high school, then college, then graduate school. So there's a word, prerequisite. There were some classes you couldn't take until you had this. It's called a prerequisite. Let me help you. Preoccupation with God is a prerequisite to passionate worship for God. So some of you, you don't need to try to be more passionate in your worship. Guess what? You need to back it up and you need to think about God more. You need to know him better than you do. You need to delight in him. You need to do what the psalmist said. Oh, oh, and I like it. Not just see, what? Taste and see that he's what? Good, good. When you begin to know him better and he's real to you, passionate worship begins to show up. Preoccupation with God. So what does it mean to be preoccupied? To be preoccupied means to be engrossed in, absorbed in thoughts about, and excessively concerned over something. Whew. And a lot of that definition, I think you would have to agree with me, that we do live in a day of very preoccupied people, do we not? Just glance at the news, scroll through an angry Twitter feed, which is about the only kind that exists now. Or spend any time on social media and you will see that people are caught up in, sucked into, and excessively concerned over so many earthly, time-bound, temporary, finite things. While giving little or no thought to God. Could that happen to a Christian? Could a Christian get sucked into living just like that? That was weak. Yes. Yes. So let me ask you. How preoccupied are you with God? How often, if ever, are your thoughts absorbed in thoughts about God. Does your mind easily and naturally and quickly just cross the line from right here, right now, over into you think about him, you praise him, you're aware of him. I hope you have a time set aside in the morning, I do. But I never forget about, it's not like I met with God and then I don't give another thought about God the rest of the day. That would not be good. When you spend time with him, you don't get over it and you just easily keep thinking about him, praising him, praying to him throughout the day. That's when you stop, start making a really big difference in this world.
So let's dig into it some more. Because you'll never be more passionate until you first become more preoccupied. So let's dig into his word so that we can move towards passionate, expressive worship. Number one. Number one, to be expressive, you have to be childlike and humble. And lifting hands expresses this so well. Think about how much we communicate with our hands, you guys. Not just words, with our hands. I can't tell you how many times people, you know, once we had video sermons instead of just audio, I think it started in 2011. Cannot tell you how many times someone has written me and said, oh, Pastor Brad, have you ever just pulled up one of your sermons, muted it, no audio, and just watch you? I hadn't, but I have now, and I enjoy it. It's like, man, that guy, he's saying something even though I don't hear anything. Oh, we communicate, do we not? We express with our hands, especially regarding emotions, right? Think about this. When we're embarrassed or nervous, we don't know what to do with our hands. When we're angry, we clench our hands into a fist without even realizing it. When we're worried, we wring our hands. And when we're desperate, we throw out our hands. Often when I'm sitting, I love people and pastoring is all about people. When I'm sitting at a light, I'll just watch other cars. I don't have audio, but I have awareness of what's going on with hands. I'll just see a woman. I'm like, man, she's telling him something, but he's just sneering straight ahead. <laughs> I'm picking up on some, or it's a mom with a teenager, same way. Homework wasn't done, didn't give her a heads up. She needs poster board like for tomorrow and they're on their way to Walmart. I mean, stuff's being said without audio. We use our hands. And so let me tell you where I think this expression of lifting hands is best displayed for us, stay with me, and matches what God thinks about us and how he sees us. You realize the sooner you begin to adopt a mindset of yourself that matches what he actually believes about you, the better you'll do in life. So he calls us little children. And at no point does he say, you know, if you walk with him 20 years and you figure out end times and you start using colored pencils and circling verbs, now you're a teenager. Now you're all grown up. Then you're a genius. You never stop being a little sad child. And so ooh, you watch a little child who's not even old enough to speak yet, right? You watch a little child not even old enough to speak yet when they lift their arms and their hands and fix their eyes on a mother or a father or, oh, a pop pops. Oh, without a word, they're saying something, aren't they? Their eyes tell you a lot, the hands and arms. I pick me up, help me. Hold me. I love you. I want to be with you. Right? I raised five kids. They all did it. They all did it. All five kids that we raised. So that whenever one of them did this, I didn't stand there saying, wonder what they want. That is so weird. I'm so confused. What is this? Talk. Oh, I didn't have to consult a psychologist or a, psycholo or a sociologist to know what they wanted. And guess what else? I was thrilled. My heart beat fast. It made me want to move towards them. Every time I knew they wanted me. They loved me. They felt safe with me. They wanted to be in my arms. Just this weekend, we were keeping the two grandkids. And I was practicing my sermon in my study. But I came out and oh, our little Emma Grace, one year old. She's just gotten to where she can stand and barely walk. She's got one hand on our couch and she's chewing on something. I don't know what, since we're grandparents, it doesn't matter. Just... No, it was, it was a rubber toy of some sort. But I kid you not, out of her peripheral, when she saw Pop Pops, she released the couch. She disregarded the toy 
and she became coming my way. Eyes were lit up, arms were stretched out, and I didn't say, stop it, you little charismatic. You're embarrassing me. You're just trying to get attention. What? Oh, I did a swoop and scoop, right? I got over there. I swooped. I scooped. I pulled her in, and then I kissed her neck right. It was so good right here. I just, I just began to kiss her. She was happy. I was happy. You guys, God is our father. And we are his children for a lifetime. That's why the Bible says so much about lifting hands. It's not just personality. Like the Bible, in fact, letter A, this might surprise you. Do you realize the Bible actually commands us to lift hands? It doesn't say if this matches your personality and you're kind of frothy and exuberant, maybe somebody somewhere at some point in their life just might lift their hand. You, letter A, letter A, you can see lifting hands commanded in the Bible. In fact, you know, we kicked off this series with me, tell, me telling you there are 50 different Hebrew words for praise in the Old Testament. The word yada is used 90 times. It's the second most frequently used verb of praise. And yada means, it's used 90 times. It means to throw out the hand. Because the Hebrew word for hand is yad. Yada means throw it out. Extend it, yada. 90 times the Bible says, yada, yada. Lift the hand, extend the hand. So where do you see it in the Bible? Letter B. You can see lifting hands used as a cry for help. And that's like kids. They're like, they want help. They're hurt. They're scared. You can see it in the Bible. Psalm 28. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for, say it, help as I lift up my hands towards your most holy place. Psalm 143, six, I spread out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you. When, you're, when you long for someone, when you want something, this expresses what my soul thirsts for you. Like in a parch, I'm convinced you could satisfy me. I'm convinced you would make a difference in my life right now. I stretch out my hands towards you. In a parched land. Letter C. You can see lifting hands used as an expression of rejoicing and praise. Psalm 63. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name. I will lift up my hands. Now you need to understand. When the Bible talks about the name of God. It means his character. Who he is. Because there's lots of names of God. So when you get a hold of the name of God. You're getting a hold of who he is, his attributes, his characteristics. And as you know him better and more about him, in the name of the Lord, I lift up my hands. Oh, that's so good. Oh, that's so good. Psalm 134, two, lift up your hands in the sanctuary, right here, corporately. Now, if this is new to you, I would encourage you, if you're not doing it at home, it's not likely you'll do it here, start at home. I mean, I I lift my hands at home. I'm like, oh God, that's so good. I cry out for lost people with my hands lifted. I'll get on my knees sometimes and say, oh God. Now my dad is in the hospital. and I've lifted my hands and said, oh God. Oh God, take him home. Call him home to you. I've been lifting my hands. I'm a child. He's my father. I need his help. This just expresses it. So I don't know what to do. I don't know how to help. I can't fix this, but you're good. Hands, hands, hands. And letter D, you see that absolutely in the Bible, that lifting hands is used as a posture for prayer. Ezra, in Ezra 9, Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn. I fell on my knees. We've already had that earlier in our series. Great posture that reminds you, he's not just our father, he's a king. Which makes it even more special when you realize this king that rules over all is actually my father And calls me by name and loves me. Yeah. I fall to my knees and with my hands spread out to the Lord my God. 1 Timothy 2.8. I want men everywhere to lift 
up holy hands in prayer. And there's not just one way to do this. So if this is new to you, and I know it might be, it might be a background you grew up in a church that didn't do that, or you didn't grow up in church at all, so it's new to you. I, I get it when you say, but I just, that's awkward, that's new to me. A lot of things were new to me. Reading the Bible might be new to you. Praying might be new to you. All kinds of things are new. Just keep doing it till it's not awkward. It's like, so let me help you. Little basic boot camp for expressive worship. I can help you and you can grow in this. Just start simple. Right here. Just hold the TV. Hold the TV. It's not, you know, it's not that wild and crazy. And as you get comfortable here, go big screen. <laughs> Consider how close you are to someone else. You might need to step over. Go big screen. And then, oh, hold my baby. Hold my baby. And there's one-handed versions. Pointer, hatchet, classroom. And when you get comfortable with all that, you are ready for village people, Rocky, touchdown. And there's variations, heartburn. And, and some women like this, wash the windows, wash the windows. Not just one way, but I, I will say on that, on that village people, oh, one of my most embarrassing pastor things, when some, what's the most embarrassing things that happened right here, right there? Because I'm an expressive worshiper. And oh my goodness, we were singing along and it happened. Whatever we were saying, it was probably about the resurrection, the cross, I'm forgiven. I went village people and a woman was coming around the corner here to her seat and my pinky went up her nostril. I mean, I was embarrassed. She was hurt. That had to hurt. That had to bring water to her eyes. Whew. And it was just an awkward moment because it's kind of intimate. Like I'd never, I'd never done that for anyone before. <laughs> and so I am a little more conscious now because I do scoot away from my beloved so that we're not banging into each other. But if I'm in the aisle, whew. so be aware of other people, but not overly aware. Because right, isn't that what really holds us back? We're thinking too much about whatever other people are thinking. Even people that struggle to pray aloud. I love you. I get it, but usually it means you're thinking way too much about what they're thinking about your prayer. Just don't think about it. Talk to your dad. Talk to your dad. Same way with worship. You gotta stop thinking about you and stop thinking so much about other people. But let me give you another biblical expression that you see all through the Bible, not just lifting hands. Number two, to be expressive, you have to be stirred by something greater than yourself. You realize we live in a day, do we not, that just makes much of us and encourages you to make much of you and make it all about you and defend you, promote you, protect you, be most worried about you. What about me? What about me? What about me? You'll never become passionate if you are the most important thing in your life and your thoughts almost always surround you and what you're interested in, what to be expressive, you have to be stirred by something greater than yourself. And shouting actually expresses this well. See, we do it in other areas, right? He made us in his image and he made us relational. So have you ever noticed this? When you love something and you're moved by it, you want others to share in that. That's why we say, look at this. Oh my goodness, look at this. You don't just say, wow, that's amazing. In our new house, we got windows on the back and we got a and woods and a birdhouse. And oh, every now and then he shows up. I see a, this giant king, redheaded woodpecker, this black and white. And, and he hangs upside down and he rules the thing. And I'm like, oh, honey, 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 come here, come here, come here. He's always gone when she gets there. It's like, I'm not going crazy. He was here just a minute ago. <laughs> it's just glorious. I don't want to see it myself, Right. I want someone else to share in, and I get loud. I'm like, oh, when we're at the Grand Canyon, when you see a sunset, when you hear music that you love, what do you do? You want to share it with someone else. And generally, we get a little louder in our volume because we're like, oh, join me in this. Shouting expresses it well. Raising the volume expresses it well. So of those 50 different Hebrew words for praise that are in the Old Testament, one of them is shavak. 
First week I, I headed into this series, I told you there's tehillah that means singing loud. Shavak literally means a loud commending praise. In other words, you are recommending him to others and you are so moved and so stirred, you want others to see it and to enjoy it and to join you in this. It's a loud commending praise. In other words, Shavak is praise with an exclamation point on it because you want others to join in it with you. Exclamation point on it because you want others to join you in it. Psalm 145, four, this is exactly what's going on. One generation shall Shavak commend, commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty When you're really stirred and when you're really moved, you don't want to just think about it. You declare it. You say it. You're like, look at that. Oh, listen to this. Come here. One generation. One of the best things that we could do. It's great if you have a time at the breakfast table with your kids or a time in the evening. But do you know what is... So I'm not saying don't do that. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But do you know what will stand out them, to them even more? When there's just spontaneous shavak. And they realize... This is real to mom and dad or pop pops and nana or whoever. I mean, they just, they talk about God. They praise God. They draw in. As they begin to understand better, I'm sure I'm likely to say, oh, my God, you guys look at that. Look at that. And God did that. I'm commending him. Our God did that. I'm likely to draw them in and try to get them to like classical music and say, listen to this Mozart symphony. The reason this is so amazing is because God created music. It's wonderful the things that kids, that you might think, oh, they hate this. Our kids today, today, will reach out to me and say, what is that classical CD that you played every morning? So even if they say, I hate this, don't believe it. You know, my son's 26, and he's like, can we play chess, and would you play that? And it was Al Benoni. He wants to play chess, and he wants to hear that, because that's what I did with him. And I commended, I said, oh, this is amazing. This is amazing. This is amazing. One generation, we want to do that with God, that they start to think this is not in just a category where they go to church or they have a little time in the morning. It's just very natural throughout the day. Shavak, look at that. Commending praise. One generation to another. Psalm 95. Sometimes the word shavak gets translated in English, shout. The old King James called it a joyful noise. But that's a little misleading. It's not just noise. It's that it's so loud you might consider it a noise. But it's words. It's words are being said. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us, say it, shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. Why? For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. When you're really stirred by that and you believe that, you'll, you'll have a little bit of a shock start to bubble up. And we do this in other areas. Back in January, Vicki went on a cruise with her sister. And every year they do this, and I'm, I bless her. I'm happy for them to do it. She only has one sister, and they love each other dearly. So they go on a cruise. This January, that cruise was during the AFC championship game between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Baltimore Ravens. Now, she cares nothing about football. So she didn't go down to that deck where they'd taken up a whole room with giant screens to do this. She was on another deck outside. But she could hear those football people every time they let out a shavak that rocked that boat. They were not ashamed. They were happy to commend their team to other people, whether they wanted to hear about it or not. It just rumbled up. Shavak. Shavak. No one was down there with a Kansas City shirt saying, that was good. Did you see that? It just erupts. Oh, why? They care. They're stirred. They think about it a lot. They're engrossed in it. And therefore... It's a priority. It matters. It's important. God should matter. God should be important. We should have thoughts absorbed towards him to the point that this is just happening more naturally. 
Because we think about him. We know who he is. They were stirred and shouting was the best way to express it. If you wake up preoccupied with nothing greater than yourself and your agenda, you'll never experience this word or have a reason to shout. You realize you were not actually created to live for you and to make it all about you. That's one of the most miserable ways to live. I know our culture just affirms that, but it's a lie. You'll be miserable when you try to live for you because this is gonna sound shocking compared to what we hear today. You are actually not that important. And it's not enough. You need more. You is not enough to live for, believe it or not. Not You were created in his image. And you say, okay, there's my identity. What's my purpose? And for his, say it, glory, glory, glory. You need something more. You need something bigger. The things of this life are not big enough, not big enough at all. And that's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us. He's not talking about how much I love Jesus. He's talking about when you are stirred and when you begin to be overwhelmed and when you don't get over, oh my goodness, he loves me? Me. I know how messy I am. I know how I fail. I know how far I still have to go. I know how much I disappoint other people. We tend to think he's got to be disappointed with me. He's, if you're here and you're a child of God and you've been born again, God is never disappointed with you on any day. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And we struggle to get a hold of this. That's why Paul, when he prayed for believers, he didn't say, oh man, get more and more and more, this, that, and the other. He'd say, oh, I pray that you may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be rooted and grounded and to understand the depths and the heights and the breadth and the width and to know the love of Christ. That'll begin to, when it controls you and it's not just in a category, okay, Jesus loves me. When it is real to you and you're still overwhelmed by it, then it controls you and you live very differently. Starting with, I don't need as much from other people because I'm being so blessed. I'm so overwhelmed by his love for me. I have more joy, I have more purpose, I have fewer fears, and I'm willing to take risks. You realize love enables you to risk. Fear is what causes you to pull back and say, I gotta be careful, I gotta be careful, I gotta be. We need Christians today living wide open with love. Starting loving God with your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You can do that when you're convinced he loves you. It controls you because we've concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live. He's not saying, oh, you got a pulse, you're alive, you're human. No, 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 no. He means those who've been made alive spiritually now. You've been born again. You see bigger now. You're aware of eternity. You know that this life is a vapor, that those who live may no longer live for who? Themselves. You realize you were born with an agenda to live for yourself. And one of the things that's supposed to characterize Christians is that they don't live for themselves. Three great words. That they would no longer live for themselves, but for him. You realize, how would living for him be good for me? Trust me, it's amazing. You were designed to live for him. And when you do, you'll have joy, you'll have peace, you'll have purpose, you'll have hope, but for him. Oh, when but for him gets a hold of you, Shavak will show up. You'll have something to shout about. Oh my goodness, he loves me. But for him, 
But for him, I'd be on my way to hell. But for him, I'd still be so a mess and confused. But for him, I'd be so frightened in this world. But for him, but for him, I think I need to grab all the gusto. I got to have the vacations other people have. I got to have the bigger house. I got to get the nicer card. I got to, got to, got to. That's exhausting and miserable. And none of it is big enough to fill the eternity-sized vacuum in your heart. He's placed eternity in your heart that can only be filled by the love of Jesus Christ and the hope of something outside. This world is too small. And everything in it, you guys, are like Happy Meal toys, trinkets, plastic. They break easily and they disappoint quickly. But we've got people trying to be satisfied in this and they wonder what's wrong. You need more. You were created for more. But for him, but for him, The problem is whenever our world does allow for thoughts about God, they give us a shrunk down, bottom of the line, thinned out version of God. That's not worth shouting about at all. You want to know who God really is? You will not find it on the television. You will not find it online. You got to go here. And when you go here, you're like, oh my goodness, robust, full strength, mind-blowing. Now, you got to be okay with this. When you really go to the Bible and you see who God really is, you will not understand it all. He will not fit into your categories. There'll be a measure of mystery, but it's worthy of your worship. Like, don't hear me saying you won't understand anything, but you will not put God in a box and say, there, behave according to my rules. Uh Uh-uh, he's big. He's awesome, he's glorious, he's holy, he's almighty, and you will not grasp it all. But if you dwell there and you go there, you will be moved to yada, and you will have a shavak. You say, oh my goodness, look at that God. Eugene Peterson wrote this, there are tendencies within us. So I hope you realize your sinful flesh would love to just pull God down to the size where you could understand it. Fully, logically, there he is. That's what your sinful flesh would like to do. There are tendencies within us, that's what the world does constantly, and forces outside of us that relentlessly reduce God to a checklist of explanations or a handbook of moral precepts or an economic arrangement or a political expediency or a pleasure boat. God is reduced to what can be measured, used, weighed, gathered, controlled or felt. Insofar as we accept these reductionist explanations, our lives become bored. You realize, especially young people, older ones, we can be guilty of it, but I see it in the younger generation. You are so used to being stimulated, amused, new, adventure. I'm supposed to have already climbed three mountains by the time I'm 26. I'm supposed to have traveled to nine nations. A lot of us had never left America. It's like, and, and then you wonder why it's always like, what next? What next? What next? What next? Your boredom is not because there's not enough in this world to stir you. It's because you don't know God. Nothing in this world can do for you what truly knowing God. Don't hear me saying, I did not just say, you got to believe there is a God. I said, you don't know God. Oh, when you begin to know him, you're like, oh my goodness, you will not be bored. And living for that God as you get to know him and giving him your life and risking is stirring. You will not be bored. I don't wake up bored. Our lives become bored, depressed, or mean. We live stunted like acorns in a terrarium. You know why he's using that illustration? Because there's that verse in Isaiah 61.3. I've got it on my wall that says that they may be oaks of righteousness for the display of his glory. He's talking about us. That's the end game. I don't want to be a sapling that's easily blown over. I want to be an oak of righteousness for the display of his glory. I found a black and white Ansel Adams photograph of a glorious oak tree. And I framed it. And I printed out Isaiah 61.3. And it's right underneath that. Just to remind me as I see it. 
That's, that's what I want. I want to be an oak. To be an oak, you got to be rooted. I want to be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. I know he loves me. I'm not counting on everybody else to affirm me and love me. And then I want to live for his glory. That's what you were made to do. And that's when you'll find yourself thriving instead of just surviving. You were created to be an oak of righteousness for the display of his glory, not yours. And when you settle for this world, you're living like an acorn in a terrarium, wondering why. What am I missing? What, what, what? And you're, you're piling little trinkets in your terrarium, but just like, I'm just not satisfied. No, you weren't created to be satisfied with that. We live stunted like acorns in a terrarium, but oaks need soil, sun, rain, and wind. Human life requires God. And not just any God. Robust, full strength, mind-blowing, biblical God. I don't get robust, full strength, mind-blowing God anywhere but right here. I got to go here. And if you do, I call them big God chapters. And if you choose to read through the Bible every year, you're going to see it. You're like, oh my goodness, Isaiah 40, he sits above the heavens and we're like grasshoppers. You're like, well, that's not very encouraging. Actually, it is. It's good to be reminded, to be put in our place. Oh, there's huge big God chapters in Ezekiel. There's glorious worship scene, big God chapters in Revelation. But you'll see them just scattered all through the Bible. There are things in the Bible that are there for information. I just need to know. And there are other things in the Bible that are there for transformation. That just blows the lid off my world and expands things. And I needed that. I needed that. Big God. Big God. Not just a God that's been reduced down to the lowest common denominator and thinned out like some cheap paint. Vicky and I were able in September to move into a brand new home. We've never had a brand new home. I mean, it was so funny as we met with the builder, you know, that day you get to pick out your colors and all that. And they're like, oh, there's level one, there's level two, there's level three on flooring, on lighting. For us, our house was 46 years old, built in 1976. Level one, amazing, we'll take it. What about the lights? Level one. This is so far ahead of where we've been. It's, it's glorious. But... Overall, we're very pleased, but we noticed something really weird right away. You know, brand new house. If you just bumped the wall, splashed water on it, that happens in the bathroom. Basically breathed on it. It would just leave a ghastly scar that would not come off. And I'm type A, I don't like ghastly scars. So I'm going around with a little sponge, doctoring this something. What is going on? What in the world? And then it popped into our head in their little video, their orientation video. It said, you will need to paint the entire interior within two years. Whatever, that's dumb. We're not doing that. Well, here's why. I thought to myself, what is going on? They use Sherwin-Williams paint. I'd learned, you know, a painter here in our church, it finally said, Brad, quit using cheap paint. Buy good paint, Sherwin-Williams Durabond. But I would give up 60 bucks for a gallon of that. So I'm like, they use Sherwin-Williams. So I drive to the Sherwin-Williams store. I'm not even half a sentence into this with the guy behind the counter. He knows exactly what I'm talking about. He's like, oh, we get this all the time. He said, yes, the builder uses Sherwin-Williams paint. Our cheapest, bottom of the line, most thinned out. he, He said this, it has tons of water added to it. So he sold me a gallon of it for $14. Because that's what it's worth. Just barely more than water. That's all it's good for. It's like, oh, so there's Sherwin-Williams and there's Sherwin-Williams. Stay with me. There's God that's worthy of your life, that blows you away, that changes your perspective, and there's God. You've reduced him down. Some of you have a bottom of the line, thinned out, cheap version of God that you did not get from the Bible. And that's part of why you never feel a yada or a shavak coming on. It's just not big enough. It's not glorious enough. It's not great enough. It's not mysterious enough. God, 
but not a boiled down bottom line God. Let me show you what you're looking for that'll make you want to shout maybe for the very first time and it will keep you stunned and satisfied for a lifetime. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled. Look at me for just a minute. Have you ever been sharing the gospel with a family member, loved one, neighbor, coworker, and it's just kind of like, what is going on? Do not lose heart. With all my stories I tell you, have, how many times have you heard me say, and they dropped to their knees and said, oh, what must I do to be saved? Like almost never. Not my job. And it's not even our job. It's our privilege. I get to sow this seed and share this good news, and then I pray. God has to remove the veil. Do you realize that? If you're here and you know him, thank him. He, by his spirit, lifted the veil for you and the gospel made sense. It was attractive. You saw Jesus is beautiful. You wanted it. Apart from his spirit lifting the veil, it sounds like a threat. Someone else is going to own me. Someone else is going to rule me. Someone else is going to tell me what to do. Apart from a work of God by his spirit, you will not respond to the gospel. And so that's why I share and then I pray. Oh my goodness, I lift my hands and I pray every morning for 23 lost people. I know more lost people, but those are just ones on my heart. I'm like, oh God, oh God. They're all over the place. One is in San Francisco at a swimming pool. One's at the gym right here. Some of them are, and I pray. I share and I pray. God, lift the veil. God, lift the veil. Show them Jesus. Give them the want to. Show them, show them. But even if, Our gospel's veiled. It's veiled to those who are perishing. Watch what's going on. Here's what's going on in our world, you guys. In their case, the God, little g, of this world, this is what he does, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Oh, man, there's something he doesn't want them to see. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus Christ. Here's the hope that we have, verse six. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. So that God that could speak life into nothing, darkness, and he said, let it be, let it be, just with the power of his word, it was That same God is the one that has to explode light in their heart. And he can. He's good. He's merciful. It's not his will that any should perish. Cry out to him that he would. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where is the glory of God most put on display? In the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, that's worth living for. That'll keep you stunned and stirred for a lifetime. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God. I don't have to say, wonder what God's like. He took on flesh and came into this world. Wonder how he would respond to someone who's a really bad sinner. But you don't know what I've done, Brad. Uh, woman of the well, four husbands and living with a guy now. What did he do? He loved her and offered her living water. Oh, woman caught in adultery, thrown at his feet, said, Lord, we caught her in the very act of adultery. Forgave her. We don't have to wonder what God is like. He took on flesh and came into our world and he's coming back. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of who? Say it. Jesus Christ. That's worth living for. For a lifetime. So what about you? I'm not asking you if you're religious. You're in a church service. Have you experienced the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? So that you love him. He's delightful. He's beautiful. You know him. You know God through his son, Jesus Christ. That's Christianity. That's new birth. You might have prayed a prayer in Sunday school as a child. I'm not against this. 
But there is no formula, you guys. You can get a whole room full of nine-year-olds to all say, I asked Jesus into my heart. That does not mean they're going to heaven. People will mouth words. Don't hear me saying no kid gets saved. At camp, you might have walked the little trail and thrown a stick in the fire. But if you were just doing something and your heart had not opened to Jesus and you didn't want him, you didn't love him, you didn't see him as your only hope and you weren't saying, come into my life, Lord Jesus, then you're not born again. You're not saved. You're not on your way to heaven. And that might explain why you have no appetite for the things of God. This is food for believers. If you're not alive, you're not interested. Do you know him? Have you personally experienced the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Because when you do, you'll be stirred. You'll be motivated. You'll have a purpose and a freedom and a hope that's bigger than this world. And you'll begin to live for and make much of him in the glory of God instead of you. That's what the, you realize that's what creation is doing right now? Psalm 19, one. The heavens declare the what of God? That's why human beings, even when they're not Christians, we're drawn to creation. We're drawn to mountains and oceans and colors and music and because it's an extension of God, they just stop too short and they don't get to God. They worship the things of God without worshiping God. But oh my goodness, there's a reason we're stirred by this. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Day after day after day after day, not a word about us. Not even a footnote or an addendum. They don't declare anything about us. You say, what, what about the angels, Brad? Maybe they talk about us. No, they don't. They care for us. They are his emissaries. But the angels, you don't have to wonder what they're all about. You go to Isaiah 6, and it's like, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple And the seraphs, with two wings they covered their feet, with two they covered their face, and with two they flew, and they cried out, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his, what? Glory. And then Isaiah said, and this is really good for us, contrary to our world, woe is me. In light of that, for I am great. I, am, I like the old King James. I am undone. Do you realize it's good to be undone? Because until you're undone, you can't be put back together the way you should and say, oh, I wasn't supposed to live for me. I need something bigger. I've been an acorn in a terrarium and I need to be an oak. Oak needs wind and soil and sun. I need almighty God. I need to live for him undone undone the book of psalms and the book of revelation it's worth noting both end on a boistry boistry boisterous noisy high note of praise when you read the psalms there there are plenty of oh the lord is my shepherd i shall not want he makes me i love those too don't hear what i'm not saying But as you start to get towards the end, it just crescendos into four or five noisy, loud chapters, like from 147 to 150. It's like, because it's Shavak. They want, you'll see it saying, let the stars, let the oceans, let everything in the earth praise the Lord. Everything, do it with strings, do it with brass, do it with cymbals, do it because he's worthy. It crescendos into a boisterous, loud, high note of praise. And in Revelation, you'll see the same thing. You'll see Revelation crescendo into four loud hallelujahs that usher us into the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. And here's what I love about this word hallelujah. Hallelujah is the granddaddy of all praise words. You know, you just go onto iTunes. I did it. And look at how many songs, all kinds of songs with hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
Because here's what's so cool. Did you know this? Hallelujah is a universal word in every language. You say, how do you say hallelujah in Spanish? Hallelujah. How do you say hallelujah? And it's hallelujah in every language. If you want to cuss in Sanskrit, you're going to have to learn a different word. Brand new words for cussing in all languages. One universal word. Guess what? That gets us ready to be one incredible crowd of people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation that will already be ready with the biggest praise word. Hallelujah. That word Yah is God. Yahweh. It literally means praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Stand on your feet and let me give you a glimpse of it as we close. Standing, and if you got your Bible, go to Revelation 19. <laughs> Revelation 19, and since we were talking about Shavak, aloud, commending praise, I want you to think as I read this, you think and you tell me if this is a quiet scene. Revelation 19, verse 1. And after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, say it with me, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. God is going to bring justice and make all things right. Verse three, once more they cried out, say it with me, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen. Say it again, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out one more time, hallelujah for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. That's what you're actually longing for, you guys. I get excited about maybe some more grandkids, a few of my kids that aren't married yet, but that pales in comparison, you guys. We are his bride. He is our bridegroom. And we are headed towards the marriage supper of the Lamb with our Savior and all things made right. No more sin. Oh. No more cancer, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death. That is where we are headed. Oh, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And we thank you for your son, our Savior. Oh, God. Would you enlighten us? Would you help us break the grip that we have on the plastic trinkets of this world? Lord, punch a hole in the cellophane that just shrinks us down to right here, right now. Oh, God, do not let us get caught up in and sucked into being excessively worked up about so many time-bound, earthly, temporary things while we give little or no thought to you. May we think often of you. May we delight in you. And then may we live sacrificially for you, loving people well, risking well, and living for the glory of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.